It was somewhere along the way during my lifetime that evening television got an idea. And that idea was they might have a show where every week there's a single episode and it all wraps up before the show is over. But somewhere along the line, they got the idea, what if we carried a few themes over from one episode to another to another? When you do that, though, you need to remember what happened the last week before. And so years ago, I remember on a series about counterterrorism starring, I think, Keith or Sutherland, a show called 24, the program would always begin with these words. Previously on 24. You'll never forget it if you saw that show. It just had a certain way about it, then you saw it. Well, today, as we're working through the book of 1 Kings, we may not go all the way through, I don't know, but we are studying the history of Israel, and you can't do it without being reminded of previously what happened, particularly if there's been several weeks since we were in it before. So, might I say, previously, in 1 Kings, the background was this. Israel's great king, David, had died. He had ruled Israel for 40 years. He had conquered all the lands around and given Israel peace so that they, they're shown in the map in light green, just like Israel's shown in dark green because now they're in league with Israel and they're subdued. He put his capital in Jerusalem, and finally the 12 tribes of Israel had peace and safety. Now, the border sometimes moved a little bit in case your map differs slightly from exactly where the borders are there. That's because it lasted for several hundred years. But that's basically the idea. Now, when David died, his son Solomon was given unusual wisdom by God, wealth and power. And under his rule, Israel had this golden age where people from all over the world came to see the splendor of this country and the wisdom of their king. And he built a permanent temple in Jerusalem where Jehovah was worshipped, and where Jehovah said, I put my name. And Solomon's kingdom was so grand and glorious and wise and peaceful and good that it was a picture of the coming kingdom of the great Messiah that will one day appear later on. <clears throat> but we've read that in Solomon's later years, he married many foreign women, a thousand in all. And because of that, they turned his heart away from God and he began to dally with idols, building them temples for their idols. And it's unclear whether he actually worshipped them himself or not, but he got close enough that he was certainly stained by it. And so God let him know that trouble is coming because you disobeyed me after I have appeared to you twice and done all these things for you. He told Solomon that, that outside groups were going to cause trouble to him, but God made it clear that something even bigger is going to happen. He says, I am going to tear this kingdom away from your son. I won't do it in your lifetime, but I will do it in his lifetime. And what form we learned that that would take is that a citizen within Israel was going to cause far more trouble than any of the external countries that were breathing down Solomon's back. This particular citizen we will get to know in Kings as named Jeroboam. We'll meet him today in 1 Kings 11, beginning with verse 26. But just before we do, we need to remind ourselves of something. The Bible, and I would say particularly the Old Testament, is full of names that are quite unfamiliar. 
If you grew up being teethed on a Bible and were raised in Sunday school, it might not be that way to you. But if you became a Christian later in life, or if you haven't been to church for many years and you come and you open a Bible, and particularly if you open the Old Testament, my goodness, Jeroboam's and Rehoboam's and Abijah's and Ahijah's and names that just get you confused. In the last half of chapter 11 alone, where we are today at 1 Kings, there are 21 names of places and people, and some of them are sound foreign. They're hard to remember. The challenge, then, for anyone who has ever taught a Sunday school class or has spoken behind a pulpit is this. Look at the variety of ages we have in this room. Look at the people, very old, and people in elementary school. And think about the variety we have of exposure to the Bible. Some people have been reading the Bible for decades. You may have just started reading the Bible a month or two ago, and it's all fairly new to you. And so there is a temptation, unless you're highly familiar with the Bible, to let your eyes just glaze over when it's read, Abijah, Ahijah, Elijah, Elisha, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and just not even really hear it. Or there's a temptation privately at home to avoid the Old Testament, which is what many Christians do to their great loss. I'll never learn this, they say, or perhaps think it's just totally irrelevant to me. But the Bible says in the New Testament that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for the Christian life. It's a great loss not to be familiar with the Old Testament. It's part of the reason why there's a great shallowness across the whole United States among Christians and churches. And it's also a great loss because the more one knows the Old Testament, the more the New Testament just comes alive and makes sense. So I'm going to pray briefly that God would help us. And then after this, we will begin to hear this chapter read. We're going to go into the next chapter as well. Would you pray with me? And please pray in your heart, particularly if that glazing over factor is something you can relate to, or if you have somebody you love that can relate to it. Lord God, you have written the Bible in the way you have for good reasons, many of which we don't understand. You chose to teach us about the coming of salvation through a culture so foreign and strange to us and so very long ago. We ask you, from the most mature believer here to a person who may be in church today for the first time in his or her life, we ask you that the reading of your Bible and that the speaking of it from behind this pulpit will do the work that you intended it and that it would be sweet to us. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings Chapter 11, beginning with verse 26. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zaradar, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here's the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terrace and it filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. Here we're meeting a man who's going to cause a great deal of trouble. It's significant that the Bible, in the little passage we just read, says that he was one of Solomon's officials. And it's even more significant that it says where he was from. He is an Ephraimite. That is, he is from the tribe of Ephraim, as the map above shows. Why is this significant? 
Well, here's why it's significant. The tribe of Ephraim, there were 12 tribes in Israel. Ephraim was one of them. This tribe had a huge amount of promise in front of it many years ago. Hundreds of years ago, Joseph, the famous Joseph of Egypt, had two, um, uh, he gave a blessing. He gave a blessing to his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were to become fathers of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Although Manasseh was the oldest, Joseph gave a greater blessing to Ephraim because he said, Ephraim will be even greater than you, Manasseh. So if you're from Ephraim, you're thinking, oh, that's great. Our star is going to rise. And now that we're in the land of Canaan, we're free from slavery and we're safe and at peace under Solomon. My goodness, we're probably going to be the leaders. When they had first entered the land of Canaan and fought the Canaanites for the land, the great Joshua, the general who's famous even outside the Bible, he was from Ephraim. Everybody thought, my goodness, he's maybe the first in line of many leaders from there. Early on, when the Israelites came through the wilderness, crossed the Jordan River, entered into the land of Canaan, and there they carried the tabernacle, that is the tent that the Ark of God was in, where the Ten Commandments were, the box. We read that when they first entered the country, the first place where they set up the tabernacle was in a town of Shiloh, which is right in Ephraim. And we also read that there was another town where later on they put the Ark, Kiriath-Jerim, if you happen to remember that. And so this tribe was on track to become the leader of the 12 tribes. And yet, there had always been tensions between Ephraim and the other tribes. Actually, all the tribes had tensions. They were much like the American colonies during the colonial era. Uh, You remember what that was like. Here was New York, here was Connecticut, here was Vermont, here was Maryland. But they were always at each other's throats and fighting and bickering. It was hard to get them together. Well, that was true there. And particularly, it was true with Ephraim and the other tribes. Ephraim was always saying to the tribes, why did you do this? Why did you guys do that? Sometimes they actually went to war with these other tribes. And you read about that in the book of Judges in First and Second Samuel, if you're familiar with those books. But especially in the several books before First Kings, we read that the tribe of Ephraim was always at odds with the tribe of Judah a little to the south. Those southerners, they thought to themselves. Then, finally, a king was made. And God made David, the great king of Israel, who beat all the enemies around Israel and gave them peace, that he could hand a peaceful kingdom to his son Solomon. David set his capital in Jerusalem, which was right at the border of where Judah meets Benjamin, sort of in the middle of the country. And the city was called the city of David. And when David became king, and put his capital not in Ephraim, but down south. Ephraim lost all hope that they would ever be the top dogs of Israel. Because now it seemed like Judah had grabbed it because Jerusalem was right there. And King David was from Judah himself, Bethlehem of Judea. Now when King David died, his son Solomon took the throne. And he, in the city of Jerusalem, built God's temple. So all the country was expected to come and worship there. Well, that's fine if you live three miles away. But if you live way up in the northern tribes, and even as far as Ephraim, it's quite a jaunt on foot or on the back of a donkey to go all the way to Jerusalem, as they were commanded to do in the Bible, three times a year to worship God there. 
And besides, not only did people resent having to travel to Jerusalem down south, but they resented the fact that their taxes went to support a king, Solomon, who lived a lavish lifestyle. Taxes, taxes, always taxes. All the northern cash seemed to go out of everybody's pocket and get funneled right down to the south, to Judah, and to the temple, and to Solomon's buildings that were down there. And Solomon had these lavish building projects, and they had to be funded. And not only funded, they had to be built by laborers. And so we read in chapter 11 that there was a labor force in all of Israel that came and helped Solomon with his buildings. The Bible says that some 30,000 people from Israel were on shifts. These guys, one Sunday, I mean, one uh, month, a year, I'm sorry, one month, they would have to go out to the forest far to the north in Lebanon and cut down wood, and they would have to drag it, and they would have to build stones, buildings, and, and labor like crazy. Then two months they'd go home. Then one month away they'd labor again, and two months they'd go home. Think about the wives and the children that are from all the tribes of Israel that had to say goodbye to their fathers and their husbands as the breadwinner ran off in order to support Solomon's lavish building programs. And so resentment all the way through the north of Israel in particular, far away from Jerusalem, rose and rose over time. Now we read that at one of these building projects of Solomon, this man Jeroboam was there. He was there because he was on Solomon's payroll to work at building the fortifications of Jerusalem. And what happened was this. Solomon noticed this man. This guy was talented. He was energetic. He was ambitious. He was strong. And because of that, Solomon elevated him to a higher position. Solomon made him, quote, over the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. Remember, we said that Joseph lived a long time ago, but he had two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, we read that the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, that this guy Jeroboam now was put in charge of, not in order to rule them gently, not in order to bring wisdom to judicial cases. He was there to oversee their forced labor that was dragged down to Jerusalem and got involved in Solomon's projects. He hated this. While he was down there in Jerusalem, for instance, overseeing them, men from the north would come down against their will, would have to work very difficult jobs, and while they were there, he got to know these men from his own tribe of Ephraim and from the neighboring tribe of Manasseh, which is just to the north of Ephraim. The men knew him, and the men liked him because he was on their side. He heard their complaints. He would hear these guys saying, oh, man, Judah and Jerusalem are getting rich at our expense. The, the saying was that Solomon's horses are housed better than Solomon's subjects from the north. That was the basic idea there. <clears throat> and so, this man Jeroboam was primed for what happened next. And what happened next is that one day, as he was leaving Jerusalem, no doubt to go back to Ephraim, he was met by an unusual man out in the country. Just the two of them were there in the middle of nowhere, all alone. From 1 Kings 11, verse 29 to 39. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem 
And Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and the laws of David, Solomon's father did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. They are alone. This prophet is a bit of an odd duck. He comes up, and apparently without speaking a word, he just motions, and he takes off a new cloak that he has, and he begins to do the kinds of things prophets do, act out a prophecy. He takes it, and he rips it in two. And then he takes one of the halves, and he rips it again. And another. And another. Apparently without saying a word. What is Jeroboam to make of it? Unless this prophet explains, what's he supposed to think? Is he supposed to think, as someone has suggested, well, maybe the textile industry in Israel is going to be in trouble. Or maybe Mrs. Jeroboam... Is supposed to make a quilt. No, no. Here's what Ahijah says to him. I am giving you ten pieces. I'm keeping the others. My coat is pictorial of the nation of Israel and its twelve tribes. It's new because it pictures the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. But I am going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon and I'm going to give it to you. And just like tearing tends to be violent and sudden, so this tearing away, which is the exact word God used, will be violent and sudden. It's as if God were reading Jeroboam's mind, because we read down later in the rest of the chapter that Jeroboam desired to rule over Israel. And so God said to the prophet Ahijah, Jeroboam, 
I will make you into a dynasty of kings, and I will make your dynasty solid if you keep my commands the way David did and refuse to worship idols the way Solomon did. Why am I tearing the kingdom away, God says? Because Solomon and the people have abandoned me for other gods. But, says the prophet, there are limits to what I'm telling you. One of the limits is this. I will not do this while Solomon is still alive. Not in his day, only in the days of his son when he comes to the throne. Because I promised I've promised David that he will have a dynasty that will continue to succeed him. And the second limit, I'm going to leave one tribe to the south, to the successor of David. His name will be Rehoboam. Now you're thinking, I imagine, he cut it in 12 pieces, tore it actually. He gave 10 to Jeroboam, and he's going to keep one for the south. What's he going to do with the other? Maybe Ahijah is bad at math. People do spend a lot of time in commentaries talking about this. The best explanation, I think, is probably this. Tiny little Benjamin sits right above Jerusalem. It's the smallest tribe by far in Israel. And therefore, when, when the southern tribe of Judah is going to be kept with Solomon's successor, Rehoboam, little Benjamin will come along. But it's sort of swallowed up by big Judah. So Judah is really the big dog, and its name is all that matters. <clears throat> So, this clarifies several things for Jeroboam. He's going to get the kingdom, but he's not to start a rebellion. He's to wait until Solomon dies and the new king comes. And he is never to attack Jerusalem or Judah or the throne. God says, all that I'm keeping for David. And so, as a result of the prophecy, here's what happens. 1 Kings 11, verse 40 to 43. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all that he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Solomon is still alive. He hears things about Jeroboam. I'm with those who probably think it wasn't just that he heard that Jeroboam received a prophecy that he would get the kingdom. It seems like Jeroboam actually took the sword and tried to foment a rebellion. Because back in verse 20, the first verse of our section was also Jeroboam rebelled against the king. That word is always used for actually taking the sword in hand. So here Jeroboam got his guerrilla group together. He tried to start an uprising. It failed, and he's got to get out of the town or else he's going to get his throat slit by Solomon. And so he flees down to Egypt in order to stay with Pharaoh, who will become, by the way, a terrible enemy of Judah. And so Solomon then dies, and his son Rehoboam is the one who comes to the throne. Now, the next verses talk about how Ahijah's prophecy of what would happen actually came true. It happened sometime later. 1 Kings 12, verses 1 to 20. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, 
heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given to him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. So Solomon is dead. Rehoboam, his son, is about to come to the throne. They're going to have a coronation ceremony for all of Israel. And it says he went to the town of Shechem in order to be crowned king. That's significant because Shechem is up in the north. It's not in Jerusalem. It's in Ephraim. Why did he go up there? Well, it seems that he had some sense that he didn't have a great hand to play. He sensed that Jeroboam had started a rebellion, that people in the north were complaining, and so he meets them a bit on their terms in order to hope to win them because he's weak. And yet he doesn't want to show that he's weak. 
All the northern tribes assemble in order to see, will we crown you as king? And they send a message to Egypt to call Jeroboam back because he was their man who stood up to Solomon before. So he becomes one of the negotiating delegates as they meet with the king in the days before the coronation ceremony. And they give their demands, this delegation from the northern tribes. Their demands are this. Your father Solomon was a tyrant, an awful tyrant. Lighten up for crying out loud and we'll cooperate with you. And so Rehoboam says, give me three days to think about it. And now come his famous interviews with two groups of people. First, he talks to the old guys, the guys who were leaders and advisors to Solomon, who had been under Solomon's heavy taxation and heavy program of forced labor. And they thought about that a lot. And the old guys say to young King Rehoboam, if you treat these people kindly, they will love you and they will serve you. Nah, says Rehoboam, I'm going to ask somebody else. And so he gets the young guys, and the young guys sashay in. They listen to his question. Yeah, we'll tell you what to do. We've been reading books about assertive leadership. What you need to do is show them who's boss. The old guys, they look wrinkled and frail. And frankly, they don't look all that bright when you just stare at them. But the young guys, they're fit and smart and strong and with it. They're like John F. Kennedy's best and the brightest. And so, yes, Rehoboam says, that's what I'll do. So three days later, he goes back and he says to the people, basically this. This is a little crude, but, well, I'll say it and then explain it. Rehoboam says to them, my father, Solomon, was Mickey Mouse, but I am freaking Godzilla. Now, there are many Hebrew scholars who believe that the particular language used there was actually meant to be quite vulgar and coarse. That's as close as I'm going to get to it. And so he said, my father used to beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with scorpion whips. Whips were whips. You get whipped, you don't like it, it hurts, but you live. Scorpion whips have bits of broken glass and metal on the end, so when it grabs your back and is pulled away, it just rips your sh- you to shreds. That's what I'm going to do to you. And so he's showing them who's tough guy. And so in chapter 12, verse 16, all the people from Israel who are sick and tired of this business say, what share do we have in David? You understand what he means, but they mean by that. David was promised a dynasty. Then came Solomon. Now came Rehoboam. What share do we have in David's dynasty? What part do we have in Jesse's son? Jesse was David's father. Everybody to your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. Everybody, let's go home. They didn't actually live in tents, but that was just a figurative speech. Everybody go home, and David, he can run his own show for crying out loud from the grave. Four times in verses 16 and then verse 19 and 20, David is mentioned. What share do we have in David? Verse 16, look after your own house, O David. Verse 19, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Verse 20, only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Basically, what these people are saying is down with David and his stupid dynasty. So Rehoboam says, well, I've got to take this in hand. I've got to show him who's boss. And he assigns to go and fix things. Get this. The guy who was in charge of forced labor over all the country. A very popular man, as you can imagine. 
This guy goes in order to try to bring the northern tribes into tow, and they waste no, no time dispatching him with big rocks. And after they stone him to death, Rehoboam kind of puts his finger to the wind and senses where things are going, and he gets in his chariot and he hightails it out of there, and he barely escapes with his life and runs home with his tail between his legs to Jerusalem. He is seething. Now, after he goes home, the northern tribes say, hey, Jeroboam's our man, and they coronate Jeroboam as king. And he becomes king over this huge landmass. And so the people in the south, they, they crown Rehoboam. Well, he's already been crowned king, and they stick with him, Judah and little Benjamin. And when Rehoboam says, I'm going to build an army, and we're going to go, and we're going to take it back, God sends him a message and forbids him. And so Rehoboam is left with his little kingdom, licking his wounds and perhaps even sucking his thumb. Rehoboam is left, as I say, with a tiny kingdom in contrast to uh, what the northern tribes have. Now, it looks, if you look on the map, that Judah is pretty big, but so much of southern Judah is desert. that It is really quite small uh, to where the population could live. And so now Israel becomes two separate nations. And it will be that way till the end. The northern tribes keep the title Israel. The southern tribes keep the title Judah. And for the rest of the Old Testament, 99 times out of 100, when you read about Israel, it's talking about those 10 northern tribes that broke away. When you're reading about Judah, it's always talking about the southern tribes that stayed faithful to David's line, even though they, they were troublemakers themselves. So, what are we to draw from this? What are we to think about it? What are the lessons? How is it to change us? May I suggest three? There are many more than that. It's hard to know which ones to go after, but we'll go after these. The first one is this. For believers in the true God, your spiritual condition either helps or harms, not just the people around you, but the people who are going to come after you. My spiritual walk with God, or lack of it, sends ripples way into the future and affects many people. It can affect for bad or good. So, for instance, my spiritual lackadaisicalness, my spiritual sin and, and distance from God, has a bad effect on many people. Solomon, his great excesses, his following other wives, and he's following these wives' gods, and is following, letting women just overrun him and his lustfulness and his idolatry. Well, what it did was it created an angry Jeroboam so that Solomon's son Rehoboam lose, lost 10 of the 12 tribes to Jeroboam because of Solomon's lavish lifestyle. The southern Israelites, as I said, lost 10 tribes. I think it'd be like this. Picture a map of the United States. And that's Israel. And, and, and Judah and the line of David. They lost everything west of Ohio. That's exactly what happened to them. It was an enormous problem to many people. Long after Rehoboam was dead. Long after Solomon was dead. Yeah. And another thing. Solomon's love of foreign women was what made Rehoboam the weak and feckless and, and proud and arrogant and rather stupid man that he was. We read in 1 Kings 14, a little bit later on, that Rehoboam's mother 
was named Naamah. Now she, it says, was an Ammonite. She was from the country of Ammon, next door. One of these pagans with false gods. And so while David had seen to it that Solomon, his son, was brought up by the prophet Nathan in a godly way, Solomon didn't care how his son was brought up. And so Dallas, his son, was greatly influenced by his wife, who was from Ammon, Rehoboam's mother. And it shows in how Rehoboam lived his life. Your spiritual condition affects people for good or for harm, not just now, but to come. And I've said it affects it for harm, but here's how it affects it for good. We read that although Rehoboam was arrogant and silly and unwise and followed bad advice, and later you're going to see it gets worse than that if you follow his story throughout 1 Kings, we read that God said, I will not give the entire nation away from Rehoboam, but he will keep two tribes. I will do this for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who kept my commands. Do you hear that? Rehoboam's grandfather lived a righteous life before God, and therefore his wicked grandson is kept from losing everything because of God's favor to a grandfather. How many of you are walking with Jesus Christ today because of parents, grandparents, maybe aunts and uncles, older people who prayed for you and taught you and loved you and made you go to church when you didn't want to? This is how God works. The second lesson is this. We're so used to it, but it's so in the Bible, and that is that God is sovereign over even national calamities. Your candidate loses an election. Your Congress votes in a way you wish it wouldn't have. Your national culture is sliding into the sewer. You can't see God working. It seems as if he's disappeared. It appeared that way during Rehoboam's time. It appeared that everything that happened happened basically for one reason. Rehoboam was the king, and Rehoboam was stupid, proud, and wicked. And yet, twice, God said the following in chapter 12, verse 15. Rehoboam did not listen to the northerners, for this turn of events was from God. Or in verse 24 of chapter 12. When Rehoboam wants to take an army and take back the north, God sends a prophet, do not do that, for, quote, this was my doing. You hear that? God takes credit for being behind his country of his people Israel splitting into and the northern nation going off in a pretty wicked way, and it will continue in a wicked way for several hundred years until it finally collapses way before Judah collapses. What, is God the author of sin? Does God make people sin? No, no, no. We might say it this way. God does not power the ship of evil. The ship of evil is powered by the evil thoughts and intents and words and deeds of the people steering the ship on the ship. God does not power the ship of evil, but God jolly well steers that ship. If you're going to sin, he says, I'm going to see to it that you sin in this way rather than that way so that it will accomplish my purposes and not just your purposes. And that's what God did. 
he wanted to separate. One of the reasons, it seems to me, he wanted to separate the northern tribes, which had fallen further from God than the southern tribes did, in order to put a barrier and keep more of a remnant of godliness in the south. And he had to draw a line between them to do that. And his temple and his priests in the south would keep that country much longer following the one true God. God is sovereign even over national calamities, and that includes any calamity, large or small, that befalls the United States of America. Finally, the third lesson. God's determination to save people from themselves, from sin, and from hell can never be stopped. His determination to save us, it can't ever be stopped. We learned that when the North drifted away, they weren't even so much, ultimately, shaking their fist at at David's grandson. They were shaking their fist at God. They were shaking their fist against, quote, the house of David, which is where the line of the true Bible would be kept. But here is what God's plan is, even though they did this. God's determination to save is not going to be ruined by ten tribes in the north who cause a big ruckus. Here's how it works. Here is God's plan. Our forefathers, long ago, were Adam and Eve, and they were alone, two dots on the big earth. And after the serpent tempted Eve, and she ate, and the fall came, and the curse against humanity was pronounced, God came and he said to the serpent who tempted her, a descendant of Eve, Eve's seed, one day is going to crush your head. That is, a descendant of Eve is going to reverse the curse. Now, who could that be? She thought it was Abel when he was born, but it wasn't. And now it could be any man. I say man because it was he's used the masculine terms there. Any man, any descendant of the human race. It could be one of billions upon billions of billions of people who would one day crush Satan's head. But later, God narrows that down. Later, God reaches into the ancient civilization of Ur of the Chaldees, and he chooses Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you have been an idol worshiper, but now I am your God. You are become, going to become a great nation, and from you, your nation, all the world will be blessed. What he means is, and I think Abraham understands it, that this champion that God had promised to Adam and Eve when he talked to the serpent was going to come through Abraham's descendants. That is, God narrows it down now to the Jews. The Jews are the ones from whom this champion would come, because God is still going to do it. Later, one of these Jewish men named Jacob had 12 sons. They became fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God said, which of those tribes that his salvation was going to come from? Genesis 49.10 says this, Kings will come from Judah's family. A ruler from Judah will always be on the throne, and the nations will obey him. He's narrowing it further yet. Of 12 tribes, one of them is going to be the container of the Messiah. The line of kings from Judah is going to be a dynasty from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Judah, from the house of Judah. The Messiah is going to come. Later, God narrows it yet further. He approaches King David. And he says to King David, he says, David, 
You have conquered all of Israel's enemies, and now that there's peace, you want to build a house for me, a temple for me. They called it a house. You want to build a house for me? No, 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 David. Instead, I am going to build a house for you. We talked about that two weeks ago. He meant, I am going to give you, the way the word house is used, a family, a dynasty, a line of kings that will come from you, far more narrow than the whole tribe of Judah. I will give you a dynasty, your dynasty, your house, your kingdom, God said, will last forever. That is, from this great king, the line of kings that come from King David will come a greater king than David, who will be a Messiah from the house and line of David, and he will crush David's head. And so God says, meanwhile, David, I may, I may punish individual descendants of yours who sin, but I will not abandon your line, your dynasty. And so that's this third major point that we come to. We come to this summary. No amount of sin, no amount of confusion, no amount of stupidity among the nation or among God's people can ever stop God's salvation plan. God will maintain a faithful remnant all the way down to the end. A virgin will conceive a son. That son will grow up to preach as no man has ever preached. He will die. He will rise from the grave. He will take his seat in heaven and he will save his people from their sins. Think about that a moment and pray in reaction to what we've been thinking about. Our Father, we who are your forgiven children in this room today are grateful that neither Jeroboam's rebellion nor Rehoboam's sinful silliness could stop you from keeping the line of David until finally the Son of God, who was the Son of Man, who was great David's greater son, came to buy our souls at the cost of his own self. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for keeping the truth alive through centuries where the flame grew very dim at times but never was extinguished. We know, God, too, that after we in this room are dead and gone, you remain alive to be with our nieces and nephews, our children our grandchildren, and that you would go after them and you will keep the faith until the day when you return. We praise you for that. We ask you to be, help us to be faithful in our time, no matter what happens on a national catastrophic level, that we would believe you. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you. Amen.